Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Chris Edmonds, CEO of the Purposeful Culture Group. Today we will discuss driving results through culture. After a 15-year executive career leading high-performance teams, Chris began his consulting company in 1990. He has also served as a senior consultant with the Ben Blanchard Companies since 1995. Chris is one of Inc. Magazine's 100 Great Leadership Speakers and was a featured presenter at South by Southwest in 2015. Chris is the author of The Culture Engine, Leading at a Higher Level with Ken Blanchard, and five other books. Chris's blog, podcast, research, and videos can be found at Driving Results Through Culture and on Twitter at SC Edmonds. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Very much excited to speak with you and your audience, Elena. I am curious to know what we are talking about when we talk about driving results through culture, because, of course, given the diversity of our country and some of our interests at our website and podcast, culture could have many meanings. When you say culture, what are you referring to? Great, great question, and it's and it's kind of the foundation of what I think our, 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 the rest of our interesting conversation will be today. Culture is really about the way people are treated within any size organization. So if it's a small business, if it's a small team in a larger business, all the way to a, to a huge multinational, I work with team leaders, company leaders, division heads to help them be more intentional and pay more attention to the quality of the work environment. So basically it's, it's looking at how do people treat each other, how do they cooperate versus compete with each other in day-to-day interactions. And uh, most leaders have, have really not been asked to pay much attention to culture or to the quality of the work environment. So when we're talking about culture, we're really talking about the employee experience and how employees treat each other. And so are we referring to sort of the formal culture or the informal culture or both? Yeah, great, great, great question. Most organizations really don't spend time to formalize a culture. So most culture happens by default, and as you can guess, the culture has maybe some beneficial pieces, but it's got a lot of mediocre pieces, maybe even some painful pieces. So, so too often, the focus of leaders is on getting widgets out the door, whatever those widgets are. So it's getting the products and services done. It's, it's getting the results done. And they rarely look at we're going to have a team-based culture or we're going to have a family culture, although that is often a desire, right? It's often a reference that, oh, we've got a great family culture. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of families are dysfunctional. That may not be a beautiful thing, right? So, so the formality of the culture isn't as critical as taking a look at the way the culture actually operates today. So it's the real, current operating culture that I help leaders pay attention to. How do you define leader? This is one area that I think we often take for granted, but there is, generally speaking, no leader course. You kind of get there by default. You get promoted to a point where you have to lead other people. How do you define leader? Who's a leader? 
That's a great question. And and again, from from a standpoint of being intentional, uh, in essence, approaching culture by design, the the only folks that can really do that in any size organization are those players who are in charge of policies, procedures, incentives, rewards. So I look at leaders of an organization's culture as those that are in charge of those things. So they typically have titles, responsibility, there's position authority that they have. But the reality is that though senior leaders, let's talk about an organization that might be 100 people, senior leaders of that organization might be able to change incentives, rules. I'm going to talk about some liberating rules that I think will be very beneficial. But it's all of the relationships with team leads, with supervisors, with managers, anyone who has formal authority in directing the work of others has a responsibility to pay as much attention to the relationships and the quality of those relationships as they do to the output. So a leader is one who has authority and responsibility for managing the work of others, and I want them to do it nicer. (laughs) Now, sometimes... You have people who are nominally in charge but are not taking their responsibility. They're passing it on to someone else. How does that work in the leadership structure and in driving these results through culture that we're talking about? Yeah. Part of part of the responsibility that I have when I work with, with companies is I need to educate. I need to help boost the understanding that culture drives everything that happens in your organization, whether your organization is a five-person team in a small business or, again, thousands of people across various nations around the planet, that the idea is a focus upon engaging people in conversations about how it is that we work together and being responsible as a, be it a formal leader, informal leader, to make sure that you're paying as much attention to being civil in every interaction. That's huge. There's, there's a, a requirement for leaders to realize that if the only thing that they're doing is, is whipping the backs, right, of, of, of those employees that are building their widgets, making cars, making sandwiches, selling products, selling services, if the results is the only focus, then people can behave badly to get that result delivered. So the idea of educating, in essence, redefining what a great leader does is to basically have people go back to their own good bosses, their own great bosses, and, and basically to say, what did that boss do to create an environment where you felt valued, you felt respected, you felt trusted? Well, people will sit there and they'll list, I was, I was given authority, I was given training, I was given responsibility. We were trusted to, you know, do the work that, that, that we were in charge of, as opposed to a leader who might in fact be plugged in, They've simply been there long enough to now, well, it's obvious that we have to have Chris be the leader of this team because he's been here five years or seven years or whatever it might be. 
and there's no training about how do you actually inspire people? How do you coach people? How do you mentor people? And so the idea very quickly becomes, well, I'm just going to, you know, push for the results that are being measured, monitored, and rewarded so so <laughs> critically, which is very, very true no matter what size business. And the relationships will take care of themselves. People will be nice to each other. And, and we know that the reality is, is that when humans get together, in the absence of clear rules, we can behave very badly with each other. We can tease. We can erode trust. We can bend the rules to benefit us while discounting others, um, we often don't behave very well. So the idea that, that I have to start with is that, number one, culture drives everything that happens, good or bad. Number two, leaders of the organization, again, no matter what size, must be proactive about, at minimum, civil treatment in every interaction. And that's often a year's worth of work. Tell us about the role of dissent, the value or lack of value of having an environment where people are free to speak their mind, even if it's contrary to the rest of the group or to the leader. What do you think about that? It's, it's interesting because as I look at organizations that I've worked with, I look at, at teams, be it project teams, at the front line or the middle of organizations or project teams managing, again, multinational, huge systemic changes, what is consistently true is those effective teams are, are made up of people who, number one, have skills, right? There's needed skills. There's talents that they bring. But the most effective teams, the teams that are able to, in essence, <laughs> argue to the death over an idea, over a potential solution, over a potential market, still trust each other. And in essence, they, they argue loudly, <laughs> often really aggressively about ideas, but they honor the people that they work with. Now, the most ineffective teams that I see are those teams where dissent is quashed, where there's one or two players that steamroll the decision where uh, inviting feedback and open discussion and critical discussion about what what's possible if this plan doesn't work, you know, what's plan B, plan C, plan D, and how is the entire team going to be engaged in discussing, agreeing to the solution, implementing the solution even when it gets hard, when there's an absence of dissent, an absence of valuing people's opinion and engagement dialogue about the solution, then almost 99% of the time, the decisions that are made are not good ones. They're, they're very, very short-term in nature, and the blame game happens very, very quickly, which, as you can guess, causes people to be less likely to throw their idea out, their dissenting idea, their challenging idea out. And if, if what we know is that everyone's got value, everyone's got experiences, everyone needs to be aligned to have this thing come off on time under budget anyway, why wouldn't we engage everyone, come to the best decision, which may look different than the, quote, steamroller kind of player 
proposing a solution. Um, we see it all the time. We see it all the time. But there's an interesting, let's go to some rules around dissent. Because if you're in an environment where there's a few decision makers, there's really not consensus, there's really not a value of, of, of all people's ideas, then I may actually have knowledge that, that basically indicates that if we go down this path in two months, X is going to happen and it's going to cost us a lot of money and we're going to look stupid. And in an environment where I'm not a valued participant, a valued player, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to just say, if you all decide this and don't give me the space, the freedom, the platform to share what I know, then you deserve to have this thing implode. Now, is that, is, is that unfair? Should they just kind of dive in and get all bruised up because of their, quote, understanding of this on a different level to alleviate any chance of it blowing up? If people don't feel valued, they're going to withhold information. They're going to not battle the culture because, again, the culture is very, very powerful. And, and they're just going to sit back, and when it happens, they're going to say to themselves, I could have told you. So it's an interesting idea because what we know is that a whole bunch of minds and hearts and hands aligned together can craft a way, way, way better result than an organization, a project team, where it's it's being steamrolled, it's being driven by the few, and you don't get the benefit of others' experience. If you're in the leadership position, what steps can you take to make sure that the people in your team know that this is welcome? What steps can you take? What steps shouldn't you take? How do you create this environment? We're discussing it, and it sounds like a really basic, everybody knows this, you have to allow this kind of environment in order to have a healthy culture in your company. But in practice, it becomes a lot more difficult if you have, say, for example, a large company where it's difficult to make changes just because of the size and, and or the bureaucracy, or even if you have a small company that's nimble, but where you have strong owners who have done things the same way forever. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very classic challenge. And, and, and again, if, if the first part of my job as, as a culture facilitator, as a, as a culture consultant, is to educate leaders at all levels, about the need for being very intentional about the culture you're crafting and the culture you're maintaining. As you can imagine, if we, if we want open conversation, we want dissenting opinions, we want the best possible solution and have everyone buy into it, that really is going to require leaders to be extremely willing to let the time that's necessary to engage in that conversation, and often we're such fast-paced humans, we think, well, there's no time for that. This is good enough. We're going to just go forward. So 
I spoke earlier about liberating rules, and I want to talk a little bit more about that because as very, very classic, basic operations in organizations are primarily driven by the need to get stuff out the door, whatever that stuff is. And again, product services, large companies, small businesses, everything in between, the focus, what gets measured, monitored, and rewarded is very commonly getting those things done, getting those things out the door. It's a very tactical results orientation. Now, the cool thing about a results orientation is you might, in fact, generate more revenues in than you're spending to deliver those services. Profitability, and again, I spent 15 years in, in nonprofit management. Even if you're a nonprofit, you have to be able to have money left over at the end of the day because otherwise you can't invest in marketing, you can't invest in people, all that fun stuff. So results is a good thing. Profitability is a good thing. But it's not the only thing. Because the if what you want is an environment where people feel in every interaction trusted, honored, respected, it means that leaders have to model it. Leaders have to structure it and leaders have to live it because that's the only way that others in the classic organizational pyramid, right, next level leaders will go, oh, well, that's what you mean. Well, I can do that. Next level supervisors, team leads will go, well, okay, then if that's how we're supposed to behave with our employees, then great. I will do that. And then finally employees will go, okay, now I see that you're really serious about trusting me validating my ideas, my experience. I'm going to more fully show up. So how do you do that? So the trick is, as you think about organizations today, all of them likely have key performance metrics that they pay a great deal of attention to. And what I help leaders do is to be as clear about values and behaviors that are going to build trust, respect, dignity, as they are about those metrics around results. So let me give you an example. So if we hope <laughs> that that an organization is going to have uh, profits at the end of the month, end of the end of the quarter, right end of the year, then we're going to have to very carefully measure what we're spending to get a product to market, what we're selling that product for, how we compensate people, all that fun stuff. There's immense systems in place around the tactics of getting products to market, products sold, people paying for them. That's a good thing. What we rarely do is decide that we need to actually define exactly what good citizens do, how they treat each other around here. So in essence, what I coach and what has been very, very beneficial for the organizations I work with is I coach them to be very clear about the values that they want lived. So we're now shifting from what gets done, right, the results, to how we're going to treat each other, how we're going to treat customers, how we're going to treat vendors, how we're going to treat potential employees. And, and again, some of the ideas here that I get pushback on is, well, humans are basically good. No, we're really morons, right? Incentives can cause us to behave badly, and and if we as leaders pay attention only to the results, we might miss how people behave badly to deliver those results. So let me be very specific. 
So I'm working now with with an organization that is right in the midst of deciding what they want their values to be. And I'm coaching them, don't do more than five. I'd rather you do three or four. So one of their values is integrity. And, of course, you think, well, of course, integrity is a very good thing to have in place. Why would you have to craft behaviors and rules around integrity? Don't people behave well? No, they don't. So they define integrity as ensuring that we keep our word with each other. They define it as keeping promises. So that's pretty clear, but it's not as measurable as how many cars you've sold today or how many sandwiches you've sold today or how many hours of a service that you've sold today. So we have to get more measurable, more tangible, more observable with how does integrity look in day-to-day interactions. So I'm helping them get to, I do what I say I will do, period. So it means people must be very conscious about the promises they make, the commitments they make, and then they must be very intentional with keeping that commitment which could require keeping key stakeholders informed. It might be saying, I think we're going we're gonna to cut a week off of this, which is going to help, or it's, oh, goodness, we're going to be, right? It's going to take us an extra three weeks because vendor A is not able to, to deliver this on time or at the quality we need. It's the conversations, it's the respect given to all of the players that I work with, all of my, in essence, key stakeholders within the organization, and potentially customers that are waiting for X to be delivered in a nice, deep, rich blue or whatever it is, right? So the idea is as we get to three or four values and three or four behaviors that are observable, tangible, measurable, then just as you measure performance and productivity on an hourly basis, daily basis, weekly basis, we must then craft an employee survey that's done at least twice a year that in essence, the first run of it invites all employees to measure if I'm a, if I'm a team lead in this organization, then all of my direct reports, all of the indirect reports I work with get to rate me on the degree to which I do what I say I will do. So as you can imagine, as we start to get leaders to be leading this charge, to in essence be much more formal about, these are the rules that we're going to follow to make sure that we have civil treatment of each other, civil treatment of our (laughs) Uh, vendors, partners, customers, we're going to have to formally define what a good citizen does around here. And then we're going to measure it with the same discipline and the same coaching once we get that data back, just as you would coach around missed performance, you'd coach around missed valued behaviors. And in essence, what you end up doing is Leaders have to model it first. (laughs) 
They're not going to delegate it. I call that managing by announcements. That never works, right? Leaders have to not only announce it, publish it, but demonstrate sincerity by embracing those behaviors, those values, and living those behaviors, and then being the first ones to invite feedback about those behaviors. So imagine this. So if you're in a small business, you've got 20 employees, three-quarters of those are part-time. They've been working your business for a period of time, and the focus of your business, the culture of your business has been focused upon getting stuff made, getting X delivered, having customers, pay on time. So there's a lot of systems there around the results management, the performance management. And it's also very, very likely that you have some very good values assumptions in place and maybe even some benchmark stars that are very, very kind, that are very cooperative, that are very supportive, that not only bring the talents and skills but also are just exemplary citizens of your team. And then you have others, right, who are less as good a citizen. And they may yell and scream, they may throw a wrench, they may curse, they may treat some employees kindly, but others are outsiders, and so they tease them and dismiss them. That's not the creation of, of culture that you want. What you have to do is to be very, very specific with, here's our three values, here's our three behaviors each, with these nine behaviors, we're going to measure them, we're going to monitor them, we're going to live them, you're going to give me feedback in three months on our first value survey, and I'm going to have to listen to, I'm going to do my best, but I'm going to need to listen to your perceptions of my behavior and refine it so that over time you see me actually living these behaviors consistently, and then I'm going to ask the same of you which means ultimately every employee will get feedback from their peers on the degree to which they are living these values and these behaviors are modeled in day-to-day -day interactions. So you can tell we shift this to very formal, um, very explicit behavioral expectations. We're not asking people to get a heart transplant or a brain transplant. We're just mandating minimum standards of civility. And here's what's fascinating about this. With the organizations that I've worked with, this process of formalizing values and behavioral terms, getting all leaders, be they formal, informal leaders, to live those valued behaviors, to get feedback in the form of an employee survey around those valued behaviors, it basically makes those behaviors as important as results, which is exactly what we want. When clients have embraced this much more intentional, I call it an organizational constitution, it's about purpose beyond making money, about serving others basically, it's about values and behaviors, strategies and goals. When the organization and its leaders are able to get players aligned to those liberating rules of valued behaviors, engagement goes up 40%, service goes up 40%, and results and profits go up 35% every 
single time. And, and in most cases, it's 43, 44, 50% boosts. In some cases, we've seen 60% boosts in the profit side. So this approach is different. It shifts leaders from thinking purely about performance management to being much more intentional, again, about the way people treat each other, about the quality of, of relationships in, in the work environment, and you'll make money. <laughs> you'll serve better. You'll have much happier employees, and people will bring their best when they feel valued, trusted, honored, respected. There's a, there's a stunning piece of research that, that I discovered in 2014 from a little company called Tiny HR, uh, and they have a, they're out of the Seattle area. They do uh, a really neat three-minute weekly engagement survey for their clients called Tiny Pulse. So their focus is on employee engagement, but they've got some really great research. And one of the most telling of the results that they disclosed in their 2014 engagement and culture survey was that only 21% of employees feel strongly valued at work. We're missing connecting to people who genuinely contribute, who genuinely give their heart and souls to the organization. Because the reality is there's a lot of people doing a lot of good things in the workplace, and, and too few feel praised, encouraged, recognized. And, and part of the, the, the shift to more intentional values can help leaders realize it's not just about the production. It's about production while people feel truly cared for. I can see how some parts of the company would embrace that once you start talking about the increase in productivity and revenue. I can see a lot of eyes opening and arms opening, embracing the concept. <laughs> how do you get the leaders to accept this added responsibility, which they may not always have welcomed when it came along with the promotion. Yeah. How do you yeah. get buy-in? You know, it's, it's interesting because most of the time, uh, be it leaders of small businesses, leaders of, of divisions, leaders of, of multinationals, they come to me because there's a, there's a challenge, there's, there's an urgency, there's a what I call typically the organizational heart attack. You know, it may be their first engagement survey in five years and engagement is awful, you know. It may be um, the actions of some, some disgruntled employees that, that bring to light that, that this is a much more frustrating workplace to exist in than it is a fun, inspiring, productive workplace to exist in. So if there is that gap and the leaders see it, and the leaders realize, boy, if we continue down this path, we're going to lose customers. We're going to lose market share. We're going to lose money. And, and you can tell that the concerns come from the production side, right, the performance side. If, if there is that gap recognized, then, then two things typically happen. One, the leaders say, 
we can't let this continue, right? We have to get off this lousy path. And the second kind of connection is I have no idea how to change our culture. I have no idea what refinements to make. I don't know if it's I got to fire three people or I got to hire a hundred. I don't I don't know what to do. Leaders have rarely experienced successful culture change and fewer of course have lived through a successful culture change. So so this process this approach and and the investment of time required with with leaders kind of defining this this different culture, right, in the form of an organizational constitution, getting very specific about values and behaviors, and then living it, coaching it, breathing it, basically for the rest of their lives. That's a that's a big commitment, and and I'm very careful to say I will bring you this proven process, but you have to decide if you're willing to invest the time and energy in in shifting from the way your culture operates today to closing that gap, reducing those errors, uh, changing the mindset of, of you know, leaders in your organization first and then with consistent values demonstration, you'll get the employees to sign up and that could be you know, 9, 10, 12 months later that the leaders have to be the ones guiding this. They can't delegate it to HR. They can't delegate it to the to the person that's, you know, kind of the most enthused because the leaders set the tone. They set the standard. So how they treat others needs to change. And and as you can imagine, for me to come into an organization even even if they've you know, seeing the gap, they understand the gaps, they understand that there's some practices that are dumb slash, you know, destructive. No one went out of their way to create a destructive workplace. It just evolved. Well, it evolved that way because you're not paying attention to the quality of relationships, right? So I come in and I present this approach, and it's a very structured, very phased approach. And it works. It works. And I tell leaders that they're going to have to spend at least 50% of their time in the workplace focused upon people and listening to people and listening to what their frustrations are in the workplace and removing those frustrations and crafting this civil, consistent, validating employee experience they look at me like I'm crazy because all they know, all they've been asked to do is to get stuff out the door. And now I'm saying, yes, keep getting stuff out the door, the right stuff, the right way, in the right color, right, at the right price point, comma, and spend half your time connecting to the humans that are the heart and soul of your business. And there are some that realize my best boss did that, you know, my greatest boss did that. And I'm not doing that. And I, it, it, it's simply a reallocation of time. And in the panicked looks, <laughs> the deer in the headlight looks, I say, you've hired really good people. You're brilliant in the way you've surrounded yourself with talented employees. Delegate to them. Let them manage the spreadsheets, right? 
you don't have to micro-focus upon, you know, what this production line did in the previous shift. You don't have to do that. In fact, that's not your job. You have others that can do that micro-level detail and frantic approaches, right, to what are we going to do and how do we report this and all that kind of stuff, because your job is to connect to the hearts of the humans that you've hired and invite them in. And what's, what's very interesting is that as, as leaders commit to, and it's, a, as you can guess, a pretty significant project, this shift to a powerful, positive, productive, purposeful culture, that's four Ps, takes time and energy on the part of leaders. And as they engage in conversations, they learn pretty cool stuff. They learn that people have been doing things in a certain way because it's been mandated, but it's dumb. And they could save 20% of the time. These employees have been thinking about the ways they could save time, shave issues, enable much, much faster production. They've been thinking about this for years, but they've never been given delegated the responsibility and authority to actually try some different, faster ways. It's pretty amazing how quickly things can shift. I had one company that was a catalog company, so a printing company, that in six months had almost quadrupled their profits because practices well-established, not questioned, were so wasteful, and these employees were just 600 employees in this whole plant. These employees just had these lists. If we do this, it's going to save us 10%. If we do that, it's going to save us 10%. If people are given the opportunity, they will absolutely invest. And People would much rather do good things at work than lousy things at work. And it's much more likely that they're going to use their their heads and hearts and hands to move the organization forward if they feel respected and trusted. Now, as you make this shift, as you begin to make demands upon language and treatment and respectful interactions, some leaders are going to say, this is not what I signed up for. I'm leaving. And so the right thing to do is to let them leave because you're probably not going to fix them. You're not going to inspire them to, to get aligned to it if they really don't have it in their hearts. So let them go. That's fine. Let them go. Lovingly set them free. With some employees leave, they might as well. But the reality is that you've probably already got 10, 15% of the population that would love to do this and maybe another 50, 60% of the population, once you show them, will completely embrace it. It's pretty cool. You just answered my question that I was going to ask you. <laughs> but let's, let's delve into that a little bit more. To quote a television character, people don't change unless there is a very powerful incentive, like a trauma. So we know that there's going to be a resistance from some of these leaders and some of these staff who are following the leaders, what is that 
resistance process like and what is the most effective way to deal with it? I know you said to let them leave, but would you tell us a little bit more about how that whole process works? Yeah, what, what's really interesting, again, if, if, if I'm doing a good job, I'm educating leaders on, on this better way, and it really is a better way, right? We're formalizing, structuring um, good citizenship, and then we're going to, in essence, hold people accountable for that. So the reality is that some folks, when given these new valued behaviors, they're going to totally embrace them. They're going to love them. There's that 10, 15% that are like, this is crap. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to kind of, you know, keep my head below the radar. I'm going to hope this is going to pass and we can go back to treating each other badly because <laughs> I'm so good at it, right? In a month. And so the, the, the reason why leaders must A, be models of the desired values and behaviors and of this new culture and coaches of these desired values and behaviors is because people are going to push, people are going to test, people are going to see if you're actually A, paying attention, and then B, going to follow through, as you've said. Because too often we do this managing by announcements thing, here's the new rules, but there's no follow-up, there's no observation, there's no coaching. So we need to give people second chances and third chances as you begin to increase the scrutiny, the observation of the quality of relationships and, and, and the way people are treated, you're going to need to coach, which means you're going to need to be out and about. You're, you can't be at your desk on a phone and, and observe the way people are treating each other. You have to be present, observing, connecting, posing questions, um, obviously, again, living it. But people are going to want to see that if this is the new approach, if these are our new liberating rules, then it means you're going to see it, you're going to coach it as a leader, you're going to live it, and you're not going to tolerate bad behavior anymore. And giving people second chances is great. Fourth chances, no. And the idea is we need to be consistent. We need to be fair. We're not going to get mad when someone chooses to not keep their commitments, which is one of our integrity values, or to not curse. We've had we've had that that's a very appropriate behavior in some cultures. And if and if someone really can't break themselves of the habit of cursing and you're saying this is important, this is equally as important as the results that you provide every shift, every day, every week then as a leader, you have a decision to make. Are you going to continue to tolerate bad behavior, which means all the values and behaviors you've just posted are a lie? That's not a good place to go. Or are you going to coach? And if you coach and people adapt and accommodate the new liberating rules, then you're going to love them, thank them, praise them like crazy. If they can't, you're going to simply say, this isn't working, you're not able to perform here the way we need you to perform, and you're not able to treat others the way we need others to be treated. You cannot work here anymore. And what's interesting is that if you're consistent, people will leave, and that's okay. If you're consistent about not tolerating bad behavior, the rest of the population is watching to see if you have if you observe Chris 
and Chris is still cursing, right, or Chris is not keeping commitments, they're waiting to see, are you going to actually hold Chris accountable? And when you do, they go, oh, okay. They're serious. This is now our new rules. And so it's not about the rules alone. It's not about the behaviors alone. It's about giving people chances, being consistent, and simply shifting expectations so steadily that they understand that, yes, production is still important, and, comma, you can't be mean and nasty and ugly and work here. You just can't. So here's the citizenship requirement. If you do these things, then you're going to fit in here. And imagine, we don't even have time to talk about, imagine how much different hiring would be if you have these values and behaviors in place. Yes, you're going to look for skills, but you'll spend 70% of your time in interviews and conversations in dealing with, here's an ethical decision we sometimes face. How would you do that? You're going to focus upon their work ethic, their own principles from their past career experiences to see if the values fit is right. Because you need both. You need skills and you need good citizens. What are your baby steps, if you will, to get to that place, that that this major shift in attitude and behavior, I have to imagine, start slowly. What are those first baby steps that help people find comfort in the new direction? Great, great question. And, and, and in the Culture Engine book, um, what I start with is, is I'm preaching to leaders, and I'm saying that if you're a formal leader, an informal leader in an organization, the first thing you have to do is to be an effective role model of what you desire from the players on your team. And so the, the, the kind of chapter, <laughs> chapter two is it starts with you. And it means that you as a leader need to decide what your life purpose is because your life purpose, whether you're completely clear on it or not, is something that you're acting on out in the community, you're acting on it at work, you're acting on it at home. So you need to kind of be formal about what's my, what's my reason for being here. And, of course, you've heard the language that I use. It's about a servant purpose. It's about who are you serving how are you serving them? What does a good, of a good job look like at the end of your day if, if you are in service to others? So that's the first thing, is to have leaders formalize their own life purpose. Second thing is to be more formal about their values and behaviors. So we all have principles. Some of those come from from our spiritual exposure, our religious exposure, from coaches, parents, teachers, we have values that we, principles that we believe are right. And we then, if we can get them to, how am I behaving? If I'm pursuing this principle, this value, then in essence, we have these players crafting a personal constitution. So once they do that, once they get that formalized and not kind of implicit, implicit means, well, everybody knows. No, they don't. So get very specific on your own personal purpose and your own values and behaviors. 
And then, and this is the key part, share that personal constitution with the players that you work with, that you live with, family members, community members, and say, this, these are my values, these are the behaviors that I'm trying to model day to day. Will you help me make sure I'm on track? Will you give me feedback and you see that I'm living my principles effectively? Will you give me feedback when you see me, for example, if I have an integrity uh, value and, and keeping my promises is one of my behaviors, if you sense that I'm not keeping my promises, I need you to tell me so I can be aware of it because I'm moving fast. So as you can tell, this doesn't begin with a team or a business unit. It starts with the head, heart, and hands of the individual leader, of the individual player who might be an informal leader in the business. And by opening oneself up to that kind of feedback, that there's some risk to that, right? But what it does is it starts to let you experience as a player, no matter what your role is, that these values and these behaviors, this servant purpose is something that I strive for. And I'm not going to be able to do it if, you, if I don't get feedback, if I don't make it obvious what that target is, and then I invite perceptions of others. If that happens first, then the logical extension is, let me put this into place as a formal structure in my small business or in my division or in my statewide company that I kind of own, you know, all the, all the work and, and all these people work with my division. How, how do I want them to behave? So you don't have to wait for someone else somewhere to say, we're going to do a culture change. You can simply start by saying, I need to live a life that is more in tune to those principles that I believe. And if I can do that and do it in a way that lets me serve better, A, I'm going to be calmer. <laughs> B, our well-being increases, right? Our health increases. There's some really, really cool benefits to it. We're happier. Um, we typically produce better. We typically interact with others on a more uh, civil basis. So there's some pretty cool stuff. And, and in essence, by starting with individuals, I'm trying to kind of change the culture of our society one player at a time. I've got a lot of work to do. Um, but that's the way, that's the baby step. Be very bold about what you stand for. Invite opinion about your values and behaviors and attempt to live in alignment to that. That could take a couple of years. That's okay. That's a tall order, right? It is. So let's say that our listeners have embraced the concept and are willing to dedicate the effort, the energy, the commitment, and the time to change this culture in their company. What would you say are some of the top suggestions or the tips that you would share with them as a takeaway for them to get started in this path? One of the interesting questions that can, can happen in a, in a team, and I'm just going to use a, a kind of classic example of, of a small business owner um, with 
you know, 10 to 15 people, many of whom might be part-time, but, uh, you know, buy them dinner one night <laughs> and sit around and say, how can we treat each other better? That's an interesting question. And I want to make sure that we're not, you know, eroding trust. We have a teasing culture here or we, you know, I saw X or Y or Z happen in the last couple of weeks and I'm just concerned. And I want to make sure that we're, you know, keeping our promises, that we're, that we're being at least civil. So let's look at maybe a couple of two or three ground rules. Ground rules is kind of uh, maybe a less um, kind of demanding language than an organizational constitution. And the cool thing about the ground rules is that you really only need to come up with three or four. And it could simply be, I'm going to be on time, you know, to shift. I'm going to, one of my clients had a ground rule of when I come to work and I come within 10 feet of anyone that I work with, uh, any customer I work with, I'm going to look them in the eye and say hello. That's one of my retail clients um, that uh, 85,000 associates in, in seven states and, and rather big organization, as you can guess, that was the ground rule. And what that ground rule did was it increased people's awareness of who's at work today, right? Oh, they had a kid's, you know, tournament over the weekend. I wonder how their kids did in this, you know, soccer experience. All of a sudden, there's a, a, a lesser burden to engage on a true, connected, personal discussion that can that can move a team forward quite a bit so the ground rules thing is much less complex and 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 the last thing that i'd suggest is don't do rules that start with don't <laughs> so in other words position ground rules position behaviors uh, value behaviors in a positive form because us humans don't hear the don't very well, and I used this example in my old days when I had a body that would support it. I played a lot of golf. I don't do that anymore. But if you imagine being on a tee box, you get to put the ball up on a little wooden tee, and it's a nice, nice mode fairway off to the right, and to the left is this big lake. And if you're sitting there holding a club in your hand, you're about to hit this ball, and you say to yourself, don't hit it left, <laughs> what the brain hears is hit it left. So you shouldn't be surprised if the ball splashes. If you want to hit it to the right, say to yourself, look at that mode fairway. They were out early making this soft green spongy bed for my ball. I'm going to hit it right. <laughs> now, of course, you may hit it too far right. But anyway, make sure that the ground rules you craft are proactive. They're things you want people to do. It reduces the translation and increases the likelihood of accommodation. Is there a source for additional information that our listeners can go to where they can get more enrichment on this topic? Absolutely. I would, I would love to point your listeners to my website, drivingresultsthroughculture.com. No space, no hyphens. It's one long word. 
and I have week, it's twice a month now, every other week a, a, a blog post and a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. But more importantly, I've got 300-plus posts all around how leaders can implement some of these ideas into their teams in a fast, seamless way. If you choose to subscribe to my Every Other Week updates, I've got a number of, I've got uh, not only blog posts in PDF form, but I've got two Change This Manifestos that, you're, that are available free to you, uh, sample chapters of The Culture Engine and of five of my other books. I've got some other cool things that are available only to subscribers. It's completely free. So you'll see the subscribe link on drivingresultsthroughculture.com. Any other third-party, not necessarily competitors, sources that you would recommend? Well, I'd say if, if we look at at some of the brilliant thinkers that are are, are very much in, and you can tell that that my belief is very very strong around servant leadership. That that those that embrace servant leadership are going to have an easy time with with some of the structure required and intentional action required um, of, of of embracing a values based culture. Uh, Ken Blanchard is a brilliant thinker, a wonderful communicator. His books, uh, you know, widely distributed throughout the globe. But he's got some of the, the best servant leadership guidance on the planet. I would say Gary Ridge, who is the president CEO of WD40 Companies, uh, wrote a book with Ken a couple of years ago uh, about helping people get an A at work, uh, which is really, again, shifting the culture to uh, supporting people, removing people's frustrations. Um, terrific, terrific book as you're starting to look at you know, how do I inspire the best from people? How do I create a culture that uh, invites people to be fully engaged and fully present? Uh, I'd say those two are, are probably the best. Thank you, Chris, for joining us from Conifer, Colorado. Thank you, Ellen. I so appreciate the opportunity. As you can tell, I'm rather passionate about this stuff. <laughs> it shows. And to our audience... Thank you for listening to Chris Edmonds, who is CEO of the Purposeful Culture Group, who discussed driving results through culture. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.